Hello and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is James Trufany. This week, we continue the story of the British Bulldogs, David Roy Smith and the Dynamite Kid. They make their way into the WWF, as it was then, as the British Bulldogs. Truly, we are at the Bulldogs moment of this particular historical podcast. Their time in the WWF was groundbreaking for the success that they had as British wrestlers in North America. It was also frustrating in the amount of injuries that the Dynamite piled up, and it was the beginning of the reckless moments of both of them in their lives. Looking back at this now, some 30 years later, I kind of viewed it from afar at the time, and as we talked about in the first episode of this series on the British Bulldogs, I don't really want to dwell on the things that could have been. I like to dwell on the positives, but it's hard not to mention the fact that both of them of course have since passed away as a direct result of those extracurricular activities well before their time. On that sad note, we will look at the positivity of the WWF and a world championship for two British wrestlers who defined their era. Their opponent from England at a total combined weight of 470 pounds, Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith, the British Knowing they had now if they needed it meant they could relax in their new jobs and develop some chemistry. They began wrestling the Hart Foundation, their friends and in-laws from Stampede. The matches were very good indeed. In fact, they ended up headlining the B-Show circuit so as not to detract from the Hogan-orientated main events of the time. Shipping off to Japan between tours, they were hot property there as well. They were literally the most in-demand tag team in the world. They would eventually have a one-year marriage to tag team champions Greg Valentine and Brutus Beefcake, the Dream Team. Luscious Johnny Valiant's men. They would be taken to the limit every night, but the Bulldogs could never quite pull it off. So they headed into WrestleMania 2, the underdogs, no pun intended. When it came to negotiating for the title run, Dynamite tells in his book how they were promised the title shot at WrestleMania, but only a shot. The nagging worry of the exclusivity being Vince McMahon's reasoning behind not pulling the trigger. Having agreed to end their tours and made their apologies to Baba, they would head into the Rosemont Horizon to make history. The Dream Team would disintegrate into chaos, the tag team titles would be the Bulldogs' property. Sealing their rise to the top of the WWF when the WWF tag belts were the most prestigious in the world. They were now the greatest Lancastrians of all, the living embodiment of that style that had emerged out of the coal mines from 80 years before. But it wouldn't be the end of the tale. They had reached a plane of incredible popularity, riding the growth of the WWF and working an incredible series of title matches with the Hart Foundation. Being up there in the stratosphere had its downsides though. The schedule was much like that of Hulk Hogan, and as such they were running on short views of health. In the aftermath of their WrestleMania run, Dynamite would incur a nearly career-ending injury that would halt their further ascension. Dynamite was having a routine day. Having cracked Nikolai Volkov's back, he heard a twinge, but thought nothing of it. He heard a twinge in his own back, but thought nothing of it, and headed to the ring. Mid-jump, his back went, and he was paralysed from the waist down temporarily. Being hospitalised, he had the first of many warnings that his high-impact style wasn't going to last. David continued to defend the tag belts with various partners on the loop, but things had to come to a head. Vince McMahon wanted Volkov and Iron Sheik to take the belts, but Dynamite insisted that it had to be the Hearts. Realising that the money in the tag division was going to be in pure wrestling, and so the Hearts took over at the top of the tag team heap. When Dynamite did come back to full-time schedule, he found his mobility was impaired by his new back situation. Many people feel his snap suplex wasn't what it once was, but looking at those matches now it doesn't seem that way. As far as Dynamite was concerned, it was business as usual and continued his bump-heavy style, even though he really shouldn't have. Davey was still growing as a performer, and while he wasn't at the main event level yet, he was starting to show depth. They ran up against the new tag team champions all the way to WrestleMania 3, 
where they would face them and heel referee Danny Davis in a six-man tag alongside Tito Santana. The second phase of their stint in the WWF began to show some chinks in their armour. Characteristically one-dimensional, they were great wrestlers but never a great interview. Dynamite felt that was down to their discomfort of being faces. He'd always enjoy the creativity and psychology of being a heel far better and made him his most money in that situation. Proposing the idea to Vince, Vince listened, but Vince perhaps felt that smaller men could stay in the underdog role better. They now literally had a dog as well, Matilda, to accompany them to the ring in a tweak rather than a revamp to their image. Considering what some wrestlers had to go through in that area, they thought they got off lightly. That hard-to-repackage reputation would follow Davey further in his career, but for now they were earning good money, better than they ever had done, and were happy to be the faces of the tag team division. With Strike Force, Demolition, the Hart Foundation, Coloff and Sheik, as well as several of them highly regarded teams, there was plenty of variation, and they found themselves once again being the underdog side of things, with Coco Beware against the Islanders and Bobby Heenan. It would be their last at WrestleMania as a team. Dynamite's no-nonsense style inside the ring echoed itself in a no-nonsense approach outside the ring as well. In the run-up to the WrestleMania 2 match with the Dream Team, Dynamite started having personal issues with Brutus Peacake over a perceived slight, not signing an autograph for Ted Bentley. And while he'd had problems with other people down the years, he'd always got his revenge through an endless series of practical jokes, or simply by talking matters through. When the WF signed the Fabulous Rougeos, there was a natural animosity already brewing, as the Bulldogs were adopted Parari Canadians, and the Rougeaus had been top of the Montreal Territory for years as part of their father's promotion. The situation created a natural wariness. Dynamite's natural authority in the locker room, Bret Hart considered him to be the locker room leader and was glad when The Undertaker began to develop a similar role in backstage politics, poor in position of perceived power. When Kurt Hennig, another born river of Olympic standard, cut up Jack's clothes one night, the Bulldogs got the blame. Jack took exception to Dynamite's attitude and a fight ensued that resulted in Jack being one on the receiving end of a vicious beating. He waited a few weeks and attacked Dynamite in line at an arena restaurant. While both attacks were jumps from behind affairs, it was clear something had to be done. Vince called a meeting and insisted the issue was done with. The Rougiers agreed to fix Dynamite's teeth and they were kept well apart. After all this political turmoil, it's hard not to see why Dynamite and David Boy didn't stick around much longer. Dynamite had become disgruntled towards his work and had been worn down for years and never really had a break. In that era of WWF wrestling, if you were on a card, you were the ridiculously busy, and if you were on attraction, you kept busier still. For the good of their health, for the good of their marriages, and the chance to call their own shots again, they agreed to leave the WWF in November of 88, their last match being at Survivor Series in a 5-on-5 team elimination match. News travels fast in the wrestling world. By the time they'd handed in their resignation, they had filled in their dates. All Japan had them booked on a tour, and Stewart had restarted Stampede in their absence, giving them a place to start over. This led to one of the most interesting phases of the career, though it was short-lived. For 18 months, they were in demand everywhere they went, with non-WWF organisations working more closely than ever had done before. Dream matches were in the offing with the NWA teams, though not long-term contracts. They took their opportunities where they could. One night, whilst doing a spot show for the AWA, they had a tear-down-the-house classic with the Rock and Roll Express. The two biggest babyface teams of the era in a head-to-head battle was a sight to see and delivered upon expectations. It is fun to see them jostling for position, the Bulldogs working subtle heel to add an edge to the match. Back in Japan, it was business as usual. The dynamic had changed, though. Giant Baba was bringing in the fresh talents, and the Bulldogs' job was to enhance them up to the main event level. Giving a debut to the Nasty Boys against the Dogs proved to be a mistake. As Dynamite put it himself, having not been keen on their personal opinions and manner, Ian Davy wouldn't even give them a drink of water, which drew the ire of Baba. They fixed it in the long term and started to have great matches with the right opposition. A bona fide five-star classic was had with the Malenko brothers in this time period, which enhanced Dean's reputation no end and showed the Bulldogs' adaptability. 
as wear and tear was starting to build on Dynamite, though, it was starting to see it was starting to be a longer time between great matches. When at home in Calgary, there was a different dynamic too. They'd become international tag team champions once again, but the biggest change came in management. Following the thought process that if you give some things more responsibility, they'll start being more responsible, and because he had shown his creative process so well in the WWF, Dynamite was made lead booker of the promotion. He took the company in more direct style, trying to avoid the pitfalls of too much show and taking Stampede back to its pure wrestling aesthetic, featuring wrestlers like Johnny Smith, Owen Hart, Chris Benoit and Brian Pillman. Coinciding with the Bulldogs' return, this brought another purple patch to the Stampede promotion. As a tag team though, the Bulldogs were done. For whatever reason they grew apart, David Boy signed to return to the WWF not long after their Stampede on-screen split, and Dan might found a new partner in Johnny Smith. It was the end of an era. As if in sympathy, Stampede began to fall apart too. Owen was wrestling all over the world by this point and being courted by WCW and the WWF. Chris Benoit was spending a lot of time in New Japan with his feud with Jushin Liger and was gaining as much press as Dynamite and Tiger Mask had done years before. As the company began to be wound up by Stu, Owen and Dynamite wrestled in a farewell street fight in Calgary. The British bruisers, Dynamite and Johnny Smith, went on to some great success in old Japan, but as the injuries and recreational activities caught up with Dynamite, he finally had to call it a day in the early 90s. As he got divorced and moved back to the UK, he began working for Brian Dixon and had some AJPW tours booked, but eventually he could not continue. His last match in Japan was Michinoku's Pro's These Days show, which celebrated junior heavyweight history. His place on the card was well earned. He helped reinvent it. Sadly, his health did not allow him to offer much to the match, and though it was a sad end, it allowed him closure on his career. Whilst Dynamite moved on to his tag team with Johnny Smith, David, moved, David Boy moved on to being a solo act, and to an extent, out of Dynamite's shadow. He returned to the WWE in 1990. His first opponent out of the gate was, was another man trying to form his own identity after a career-defining run in tag wrestling, The Warlord. Managed by Slick, The Warlord was pretty one-dimensional. The gimmick to the series wasn't great either. The battle of finish maneuvers. The Warlord's Phil Nelson. The Warlord's Phil Nelson against Davies running a power slam, but which was basically a rerun of the Hercules Hernandez Billy Jack Haynes series of three years before. Davy, having upped his body mass to that of a true heavyweight, was a believable powerhouse in comparison to The Warlord but the story became about Davies' mix of science with power. They wrestled each other what seemed like eons. Running into WrestleMania 7, their match would be lost in a sea of emotions that involved the Hogan vs. Slaughter main event and the Savage vs. Warrior retirement match. Someone was taking notice, though. At least Davies could handle bigger, less able opponents and make them look like something. His next pay-per-view appearance would be against Bruder Brosey devotee, the Berserker, in the UK-only pay-per-view UK Rampage, at Rampage. UK Rampage at London Arena. At SummerSlam, he tagged with Ricky Steamboat and Kerry Von Erich against Slick Stable of the Warlord and the Little Miss team of Power and Glory, Paul Roma and Hercules Hernandez in the opener. In the run-up to the event, as predicted by Bret Hart, he began a series for the Intercontinental title held by Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. This would be his first title shot at singles gold in the WWE, and though it ran on the house show circuit, Davey was out of the title picture by SummerSlam and back to turning back monsters. Bret had offered the first challenge role, figured out that it was the second challenger who was more likely to take the cold, and so he declined. David got the job of enhancer. Not that Kurt needed any enhancement, and Brett got the gold. It was a minor setback, but a setback nonetheless. Thank you for listening to Telling Stories today. We will move on more towards David Boy's solo career in the next episode, as we move into the fourth and final phase of this particular story, as part of the Best of British series on Telling Stories. Thank you very much for your time today. You can find the Trooping Show channel at Trooping Show on Twitter, on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and at Patreon, The Troopany Show, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Please listen to our sponsors, powerslam.tv.
Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on Powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv. Please go to Indie Empire Magazine where you can find lots of writing about me as a managing editor and Ashley Rosenova as well, who she is our founder and promoting and founding editor of that magazine. The theme music is called Salmon Salad Boogie by Sheriff Lone Star, the deputies of Heartbreak. You can find them at, show, at Bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone Star. <laughs>